0: January 16th, 2011, wow, that's pretty amazing, lecture discussion number 29 on the book of Romans. Okay, being that lecture number 28 took place on December 19th, and this is January 16th, uh, we should expect that many, if not most, will need to be reminded where we left off, especially me, that was almost a month ago. And as you know, most of you here and those of you who are listening by Internet, I have been gone for three weeks. I have not been here um, for the past three weeks. So there's a gap on these uh, websites that don't show me participating, and that is exactly the case. Um, I was three weeks away. And again, I recognize that the Internet, uh, you folks out there, there's a a, a significant group of you now, and it's uh, astonishing to me because we are a little tiny church up here. We are by far the smallest church on the Internet. I can guarantee you that. And it's kind of staggering to see how many uh, folks are out there watching and listening to us. And um, again, we won't ever let you vote. And uh, we will give you no authority. And as a, as a, this class, you should understand, if you laugh more at my jokes, we might convince them there's more of us here. And they won't think that we're easily uh, uh, overcome. Anyway, I and the family went to a family reunion. That makes sense, huh? In Sacramento, California, to be with the big Earl and Lori's mom, Barbara, and I learned new things. Whenever I I travel badly, I really do, as you know, I hate to travel, I hate airplanes, I hate to leave my chair. I'm not afraid of them or anything. I just don't like them. They're noisy. They they charge you six dollars for a bag of potato chips now. It's ridiculous. But I and I my legs hurt and my I just can't deal with it. By the time I get off I'm an old crotchety person now. But we went and I learned new things. I always learn new things. I learned that restaurants in Sacramento have menus with non raw sections. It's the first time I'd ever. I don't get out much. It never occurred to me that a restaurant would need a menu, and on the menu would be a section that said non raw. I wouldn't think that was necessary. It never, as I said, occurred to me that this was something I would confront that would even be... Who would imagine? I could just think about the guys. we got to put our menu together, and we have to have a section that says non-raw section. And clearly the sophisticates of society in Sacramento will find me unwashed. Because I think cooking meat and poultry and fish is a good idea. That's good. Heat and fire, good. Worcestershire sauce, good. I want that. Cold, bleeding, slimy, E. coli, not good. I don't need a section on the menu that says the non-E. coli section. Seems obvious to me, but apparently not so. So, I've been gone. I missed two Sunday lectures because of traveling and the joys associated with all of that. And then last week, I was very sick, very sick, um, incapacitatingly sick. I had a bucket with me at all times, sick. That includes night. it occurs to me that if i go into more detail i'll have the buffet all to myself so i'm tempted Lori told me not to do this but um and maybe i should stop you know how you get that idea maybe you should stop whenever you get that idea you should you should stop but <laughs> I just want to say that my bucket accuracy was spectacular. It was, it was, specta- it was. Oh, I mean, pegged the meter good. I, I had eleven shots at that bucket and I had no misses. I was really, and you know, you count. You can't help yourself. You, you do. Uh, you you guys, so how many times am I going to do this? That when you get older, and I can't wait for some of you to get there. This is the worst thing you can do. Is the worst thing you can do, but no misses. Eleven for eleven, you can, you can applaud. Go ahead. Yay! Make them think there's lots of us. Okay, they they know there's only about all, about eight. Yeah, at least eight. Okay, where are we? Where were we? That's probably better. Where we're going, all those are appropriate questions. Let me review this quite a bit because I know of this big gap and everybody has forgotten and I have forgotten as well because that's just how we do things anymore. We're at Romans chapter 3, specifically Romans 3 through chapter 3, 9 through 20. This is where the Holy Spirit, through the Apostle Paul, has placed in Scripture, and he's done it again, The words of David from Psalm 14 and Psalm 53. Three times these words of David are in Scripture, uh, and you should know them by now. Do not be the shockingly ignorant of your faith. David writes this, and Paul puts it here. There is none righteous, no, not one, and I'm truncating it. It's far more complex than this, but this is the gist of it. There is none righteous, no, not one, none who understands, none who seeks after God. All have turned aside. There is none who does good, no, not one. And if all you get from the Roman study of chapter 3 is that burnt into you, then that's very good. My goal, as you notice, I repeat things. The just shall live by faith. There is none righteous, no, not one. Those are powerful, solemn words. So, off we went to find out the obvious, huh? What's the obvious? Why'd he write them? Why did King David write this down? What happened to him to make him write it down? What was he thinking when he was writing it down? And then to find out why the Apostle Paul was led to place them at Romans 3. What's the discussion of Romans 3? That these words have to be there? because he is attacking the prevalent theology at the time of Israel. Is what Paul is doing, and he is bringing up the words of David. And naturally, any time we're going to study David, we end up in 2 Samuel 11 and 2 Samuel 12. That is a defining moment for David. I think I can make the case, and I will very shortly, that David wrote these words because of 2 Samuel 11 and 2 Samuel 12, the events therein. And so we went to 2 Samuel 11, and that's what? What is that? Do you remember That is what I call, and I think correctly so, the taking of Bathsheba. If you have not been here, or if you have not been listening, all you folks out there, I have the position that the taking of Bathsheba is exactly what it says. Bathsheba was taken and she was raped. Forget what Hollywood told you about her being a seductress. That is not in Scripture There is no way you can extrapolate it out unless you were trying to deliberately uh, defame it or profane it, probably would be more accurate. We have the taking of Bathsheba by David by force. He's the king. He's older. He's in his fifties at minimum and she's in her twenties at maximum. And he takes her. And it even says so. There's no stuttering. And then David attempts to deceive Uriah, his mighty man, his great friend, this man who was devoted to him, who fought with David, who accomplished great things with David. He attempts to deceive Uriah. He attempts to tempt Uriah. Now let me go back again. The taking of the woman Bathsheba, the attempt to deceive Uriah, the attempt to attempt, I shouldn't say that, let me back up again. The taking of Bathsheba, the deceiving of Uriah, or the uh, hope to do so, it did not succeed. And then the tempting of Uriah, followed by the treacherous murder of Uriah. Okay? And I said it that way. And I described it that way deliberately, so that to help you connect to other passages in the Bible. Right now, you should be going through your mind, where else is there the taking of a young woman, and then deception and then the temptation and then the death? Where else is that? Okay? Begin to make these connections yourselves, and we've covered this a little. And I hope you can do it, regardless of whether you were here. Now, Second Samuel eleven four. Then David sent messengers and took her. That's what I'm trying to emphasize. Took her. Second Samuel eleven four. Took her. It's important to note that Bathsheba was taken. If I could put one thing on the position, pay attention. The fact that she was taken. Took. Now you'll find many, many people that will. Emphasize otherwise, and try to get her complicit in this. And I just said that a few weeks ago. You confront the where she's described differently, and you confront the fact that God has a tremendous place for her in Scripture. We'll get to that in a moment. So it's very important to note this in Second Samuel eleven four because she he lay with her for she was cleansed. He lay with her because she was clean. So she was clean. What's the implication? After he lay with her, she was what? She was unclean or filthy. I have a clean woman made filthy. David intended then to manipulate Uriah into participating in the cover-up of the taking of Bathsheba, the rape of Bathsheba, and he's now got a big problem because Bathsheba is with child and it is David's child and he needs now Uriah to participate in this cover-up of what he has done. And it's soon going to be known what David has wrought, what the king has wrought, because the young girl is going to produce evidence. Now there's no DNA is there? There's no blood death, there's no way to guarantee, and there's no way you can prove that uh, David is the Father. Can't be proven. What's he gonna do? He's a powerful man, the most powerful man, what's he gonna do? Lots of witnesses though, aren't there? Lots of witnesses. He. Everybody knows what's going on here. There's a whole group of witnesses here. He didn't cover his tracks at all. Think about that a second. I have a king, a very powerful king. He utilizes messengers. He utilizes people to follow and watch and see what he's doing at all times. He has to because he's got to be protected. The secret service, if you will, of this day. He's surrounded by people. He does this in their view. What kind of man would do this kind of stuff in the full view of his security detail and not care? Well, we've elected a couple in this country. Those are some special men. Those are unique thinking people. They don't care. That's a profound level of wickedness. Anyway. This young girl will, will produce evidence, if you will. She will be evidence herself against David. And therefore, what's her problem now? Her life is in great danger. Her life is at stake. If she testifies against the king, Leviticus 20.10, there's death penalty for the king. Does he know this? Absolutely he knows it. So what's he going to do? He's going to either get rid of her or he's going to deny it. Now, he can't really deny it. How many witnesses he got? They're everywhere. But if he does deny it, then what happens to her? Is this her husband's child? No, it can't possibly be. Why not? He wasn't there. She's a what? Last time he knew her. Last time he was with her. Has this marriage been consummated? Is the ultimate question. You make your own conclusions. I'll make the case as best I can. In any event, if the king denies it, and if the king is protected by all these witnesses, then what is the fate of Bathsheba? She faces the death penalty. Leviticus 20.10. She is with a child, not of her husband. So, I have a woman who is with a child, not of her husband's. What's the first thing you, t- when I say that to you, I have a woman who is with a child, not of her husband. What do you yell back at me? Where in scripture am I now? I am with the Virgin Mary, aren't I? Right? Same story. Not exactly. But the elements are piling up. And that's what you do in Scripture, as you know. You find all the elements and you try to put them all together. We'll talk about that in a minute. So I want you to consider for a moment a young girl, a heretofore virgin in all likelihood, should be a virgin in all likelihood with respect to Bathsheba. Not positive of that, but I am suspicious that that's the case because of the way Uriah responds with a child that is not her husband. She's under great danger. She's under great threat. She's helpless. Obviously she tells the king if Uriah abandons her, if he makes her a public example, she's executed. So Uriah has that decision. Should he make would he make her a public example? Would he perhaps put Bathsheba away secretly? This is Matthew 119, isn't it? That is exactly the thoughts of who? Joseph, well, that's rated. I'd be remiss if I didn't put these together. So open your Bibles, your textbooks, if you will, to Matthew 119. 118, actually, I'll back up and read the first verse. Just so you can see what I'm trying to bring before you. Now, the birth of Jesus Christ was as follows. After his mother Mary was betrothed to Joseph. So there's a betrothal. A betrothal now is is a powerful legal document. As if you were married, though the marriage not consummated. Before they came together, she was found with child. Do I need to spell that out for you? Betrothed, not consummated. Before they came together, Mary was found with child of the Holy Spirit. Then Joseph, her husband, being a just man... And not wanting to make her a public example was minded to put her away secretly. Okay? So then I compare that to Uriah, who I know is an honorable man, a just man. He would not do this thing. He would not hide David's sin. And he would take the consequences of that decision. That is an honored man, a just man. He would not do He would not put Bathsheba away secretly. He would not cover up David's great wickedness. And though David attempts to deceive them, Tries to give him gifts, tries to get him drunk, tries to trick him into going in there so he could have plausible deniability. Uriah has none of it, and it is obvious to me that Uriah knew what was going on at all times and wouldn't participate. I just think it is clear as a bell that way. I know some would disagree with me, but give me a little bit more chance to prove otherwise, just in case you disagree. And if you do disagree, it's perfectly okay. Lots of people disagree with me. All of them, of course, are wrong that's right bless their hearts well, they come around eventually i have time the just man uriah would not do this thing boy second samuel 11:11 11, 11. and he knew what the consequences would be when he would not do this thing so david murders Uriah, intends to murder him, draws up the documents of his death, the plot if you will, the, puts them in Uriah's hands, so Uriah is carrying his uh, orders of execution, and Uriah obediently, Now, has Uriah thought this through? Oh yeah. I, I'm going to make the case that when David gives those orders of execution to Uriah, Uriah knows they are the consequences of his statement to David, I will not do this thing as your soul lives. I will not do this thing. And he gets a piece of he gets a document, his execution orders. And Uriah obediently, knowingly, Carries the very orders that outline his death. Does that remind you anybody? Hey, I don't want to spell it out for you. I want you to see the Christology without me. And Uriah obediently carries his orders to his death undeceived. Undeceived, 2 Timothy 2.14. And as a consequence of going to that obedient death, undeceived, Bathsheba lives. And once again, an undeceived man goes into death. So what do I want you to do? I want you to go find all the other undeceived men. Who's the most obvious undeceived man? Adam. Who's next? Can't fool this guy. Every time you try to catch him, you can't catch him. He always knows you're coming. Can't deceive him. Who's that? Elijah. That's right. So there's your other undeceived man. Now you got Uriah. So you begin to put these men together where death is plotted for them. In the case of Uriah, he carries the very plot with him as he goes obediently. And so I want you to see the prophecies repeat, the pattern repeat, if you will, the prophecy Poorly said, the pattern repeat, the prophecy of Christ is in shadow again. We'll talk about that in a minute, why it has to be in shadow. It can't be spelled out for you. It can't be laid out. People are really frustrated. They get the most frustrated with Samson. Uh, For one second, Samson is a type of Christ. And then the next, because he's a Nazarite. That's why Christ is born in Nazareth, because of the Nazaritic oath. Okay? so one time uh samson the and he also is a miraculous birth, so Samson is one of the seven miraculous births, if you will in scripture he 's a nazarite he 's dedicated to God, and there 's your type of Christ okay then he is a part he 's he's Israel and then he 's the i 'm sorry uh, for, next he 's the uh, antichrist and then he is uh, Israel, and he constantly changes all through. Every passage, it seems like I have a different prophecy or a different portrait that Samson is. He's probably the most complicated type in all of the Bible. And it frustrates people. How come it isn't clean? How come it isn't obvious? Why isn't it spelled out better? What's the obvious answer to that? Obviously, this is the only way God could do it, and you don't like it. Who's in trouble? You, in big wampum, heapum trouble. As you know, all of the Old Testament is testifying of the Godhood of Jesus Christ. All of it. It is the singular purpose of the Old Testament to present... God the person and the redemptive work of Jesus Christ. Have no position that implies in any way that Jesus Christ was ever, ever, ever deceived. Ever deceived. And here's Uriah, see, who clearly is a type of Christ. And therefore the case that he was not deceived, I think, is overwhelming. Many other things are also there in regard to the Old Testament but never, never read the Old Testament without finding Christ. We're commanded to do so without seeking Him and without knowing that He is omnipresent, omnipotent and omnip- I'm sorry, <coughs> omnipresent, omniscient, omnipotent God himself in the flesh. If you're reading the Old Testament with any other idea, you are off the trail, and chances that you get back on the trail are, are hopeless. Anyway, Second Samuel twelve then is next. That's our review. If you didn't weren't paying attention, that's our review of Second Samuel eleven. And Second Samuel twelve is the parable of the heaven sent man. So so obviously, there's a, a, a Nathan as a type of Christ, the prophet Nathan has come, and he proclaims. First, he gives a parable to David, and then he does what? What's he do next? He curses him. First a parable, then a curse. Again, let me reemphasize, just in case I haven't placed it clearly before everyone. I'm hesitant, as you know, to completely spell it out. That is for you to do on your own. But i got to make sure that everybody is with me here, uh, at least to this point. A woman is taken. She is under a death sentence now. Her husband is under great pressure. He has decisions to make. The king, uh, in italics or quotations, if you will, really is the king, King David. But who is he here? The king, uh, David, is attempting to drag the husband into the scheme, deceive him into participating in the death and the crime of the king. In other words, if I can get everybody under the same death sentence, what's going to happen to me? Nothing! Do you see where I'm headed here? I got a couple of you shaking your head. I hope it's more than two. I mean, shaking this way, as opposed to, I have no idea, weird person, what you're talking about. I gotta, let me repeat it. A woman is dying. Her husband has decisions to make. Someone is attempting to drag the husband into the death scheme with them all, so that nobody is outside the death scheme. We're all going to die together, baby, so we'll all shut up. And one guy says, no, I will not do this thing. The husband refuses. The king then has to plot to kill the husband, and the husband goes to his death. And the death sentence over the bride, over the wife, if you will, is then unenforced. Next, the heaven-sent prophet comes with a parable and a curse, and the king does what? He confesses. Now the story's changing, right? You You have one typological picture, now we got another one. It's changing on you. The king confesses, and the king is cursed, and the child that is born from the woman dies in the place of the king. And we talked about that last week, and you immediately see, I hope, the first advent or the first coming of Christ. With the death of the child, those are... The key elements. Now, in order to put them into correct places, it's usually necessary to go around the Bible and find the other passages that contains these same elements. And obviously, I've been pushing you towards Genesis 3. I hope that's obvious. I've been trying to stuff it down your throat. Last 15, 20 minutes. That's the first mention of all of this. That's where I have Satan. That's where I have the husband, Adam. I have the wife, Eve, in death. That's where the curse is. But there's others. And it's important, by the way, to note the similarity between 2 Samuel 11 and 12 and where else in David's life. David has a tendency to do this a couple of times. Okay, he did it a couple of times. Two places in Scripture where David sins wickedly. One is 2 Samuel 11, and the other one is 2 Samuel 24, or 1 Chronicles 21. You've got to put those two together to find out who's really involved in that. And, of course, that's where you find Satan is in 1 Chronicles 21. So, again... First Chronicles 21, 2 Samuel 24, Satan attacks David and David sins, does wickedly, great sin, horrible evil, and David is given three decisions again. This time David's got the decisions, the other time Uriah had the decisions, Adam at first has the decisions, and you track the decisions through, and then now you're able to figure out what decisions they really were by comparing them all, right? And a curse comes, death by plague. And who is killing the people of Israel in 2 Samuel 24? Jesus Christ is killing them, the angel of death, the Passover angel, Christ himself. And silver atonement is required, blood money, if you will, Exodus 30, 11 through 12. So two times David is very evil, 2 Samuel 11 and 12, and 2 Samuel 24. And there's two great confessions from David, two curses there, and what should we do? we got to read them side by side. Because they're two halves of a whole. In order to properly glean all the truths that are contained within these literally true events. They actually did happen. David actually did it. He did. He took, he took Bathsheba and he raped her, in my view. I think that is the only conclusion you can have. And... And then he goes around and he decides to have a census and count everybody with atonement money. When he knows it is a horribly evil thing to do, he does it anyway. And those two fit together. They are bookends or their two halves, as I said, to a whole. And so you have to put them together to find out. People ask me all the time. They say to me, how, do you, how did you figure out Second Samuel 24? It's easy. Okay, it's not easy. But you do it by finding Second Samuel 11. And twelve, and so it's very important to do that, but setting that aside, I'm just throwing this at you today more than anything else because I got to get you back up to speed, and I know you've been missing, and you're the most holy people in the church. you've come back after three weeks. There were rumors that none of you would come back unless we had a much better buffet. what's that? Yes, you can ask a question. Yes, and we are on the internet. So, those of you listening by the internet, Dave is asking a question. Yes, sir. Okay. Why not? (laughs) We're now first kings or second kings. First Kings fifteen five is where Dave would like to go. Yes, sir. Go ahead. Oh. In other words, it says, because David did what was right in the eyes of the Lord and had not turned aside from anything that he commanded him all the days of his life except in the matter of Uriah the Hittite. And so your question is, what exactly happened? Why is that except Uriah the Hittite there? That's exactly what we're doing. We're, we're doing exactly what did David do differently at Uriah the Hittite. I think I'll make the very strong case what he did differently. One thing he did is he killed him, but he did confess, didn't he? The story goes on. We have the rest of 2 Samuel uh, 12, I think, will answer your question. And I have a note here. Read 2 Samuel 12, 7 through 25. So, once again, somebody's trying to be ahead of me. As important as that is, that we're going right back to it, and I hope that answers his question, I'm sure it will, let me ask you one thing. I've got to give you this as well. Where else is somebody taking women? Where else does taking women Extraordinary. Taking a woman, if you will, or taking women. In this case, I gave it away. Doggone it. I didn't want to do that. But where else in Scripture is taking women a significant event that causes a tremendous response from God? Neville, that's where I'm at it. You bet. Genesis 6. Thank you. I'm sorry if you all said it and I only heard Katrina because I have been. I have been uh, I've been taught over time to listen to Katrina. Genesis six. I want you to recognize Genesis six. When men began to multiply, daughters were born to the men, and the sons of God got up on the roof and saw, I added that part and saw the walking around on the roof, minding their own business, even though they're 50-year-old pieces of junk. Okay, I'm adding that part too. Trying to put it all together for you. Let me start all over again. Somebody's going to be confused. When men began to multiply, daughters were born. The sons of God saw the daughters of men that they, the daughters, were beautiful. And they, the sons of God, took the daughters for themselves. And here we go again. Beautiful daughter, beautiful women, being taken. And the Nephilim result. Giants. And there's great wickedness. There's evil continually. The earth filled to the brim with violence. And by the way, that's murder. Murder. I got the earth filled to the brim with murder. What's the obvious question? Who's getting killed? Who's doing the killing? We probably figure the giants are doing a lot of killing, because they're giants, duh. Why are they killing them? See? Who is getting murdered and why? What specific reason God has to interfere to stop all the murder? How does He stop all the murder, by the way? He, yeah, He kills everybody. That works. Don't be running out hoping that tribulation's coming, because that's what's going to happen there. Why are people getting killed in the tribulation, by the way? They won't take the mark, will they? Why are people getting killed pre-flood? I'll make the case. They won't take the mark. What's the mark? Noah and his family. It says, Noah is uncontaminated in the Bible. And they are the only uncontaminated because we know the Bible tells us that the ungodly perished in the flood. And that means there were no godlies that perished. So people say, why did God kill all the other saved people in the flood? What's the answer to that? There wasn't any. Only Noah. Where do, how many I was reading this to somebody the other day. Henry Morris, uh, if those of you who have the New Defender's Bible, he estimates how many people are on the Earth. If you, who has a New defender's Bible? pre-flood. Go to Genesis six and, and uh, see how many people he says are there. I'll help you out. He says there's eight trillion. He did the math. How many people? How fast you can populate, how many people die, how much food is there, how much land mass is there. Lots of people. How many are saved? Yeah, you make the case for seven at least. We're worried about that eighth lady. We'll get into that some other day. Anyway, good for you. I'm not saying Henry Morris is correct. I just want you to look at the math because the math is amazing. You'll see that there's there's at least billions and billions of people, and the only one uncontaminated is Noah and his family. And God brought judgment to the whole earth because of this Nephilimic contamination or this Nephilimic result that is occurring when the sons of God took the daughters of men. Now, I'm aware of the debate amongst the Bible scholars. I'm well aware of it. I've debated it thousands of times. I know that there's four different views. There's really three that are old and one that's relatively new, and that happens to be Henry Morris, by the way, as well. I know there's the cosmologically mixed view. That's the one I have, obviously. And there's also the sociologically mixed and the religiously mixed, and, and then Henry's demon uh, possession view. Blah, 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 blah. I could explain it to you. We don't have time to get today. I've done it thousands of times, as I said. If you want to argue with it with me, see me afterwards. However, I'm a literalist. Yeah, that means that whenever the Bible intends to be taken literally, we should do so, and I do so. Genesis 6 is clearly one of these. I have the sons of God. Those are angels. They're always angels everywhere in Scripture. They're only angels. They can be nothing but angels. And the obvious question is, is why are they masculine? Because angels are always what in Scripture? Masculine. Otherwise, you have to ask the obvious question if you think that this is Christian men who somehow only marry Non-Christian women, that's the religiously mixed view. Why aren't there Christian women then who only marry non-Christian men? It just doesn't make sense except as it's literally taken. And I have these monstrosities, these Nephilimic giants, and then nothing can, can affect that. You can try demon possession. Good luck with that. Uh, it won't fly because then you have the demons only possessing who? Men. Why? No woman wants to be possessed. I think mean, you can make the case and never mind. Right there, right there that voice that says, Stop now came up again. <laughs> Thank you for laughing. That may they may think there's twelve, fourteen of us here now. There's more than that, but barely. Okay. Pay attention. All I want you to do is to pay attention to the taking of women and pay attention to the taking of women for evil purposes and start compare the other takings. Okay, that's, a, that's the review. And now let's start the sermon because Dave wants to go to Second Samuel 12. So let's do that. And you think I'm kidding about starting the sermon. No, I'm not. This is where it starts. It's only two pages left. You can make it. But Dave asked a good question. Something happened here with David to where God brings up Uriah the Hittite. Okay, we're going to read a lot of it because we have to. We're going to start at 7. I don't know how much I read before. twelve seven, But we'll rush through it. We've got to get to the end of it. So read along. Very important. Yes, we'll keep going next week. I was going to try to do it in three but, I'm going to end up doing it in four Sundays. Then Nathan said to David, "You are the man, you are the killer. You are the this evil person. In the first part of Samuel twelve is the parable. Then David said to David, or then Nathan said to David, "You are the man, thus says the Lord God of Israel, I anointed you king over Israel. I delivered you from the hand of Saul. I gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your keeping, gave you the house of Israel and Judah, and if that had been too little, I would have given you much more. Why have you despised the commandment of the Lord to do evil in His sight?" Now does God know the answer to that question? Yes, he's omniscient God, so why is he asking it? For your sake, for my sake, and for David's sake. Okay? You have killed Uriah the Hittite with the sword. You have taken his wife. Notice again, taken his wife to be your wife, and have killed him with the sword of the people of Ammon. Now therefore, the sword shall never depart from your house. Here comes the curse part. You have sinned wickedly and you're being cursed. Okay? Sin, curse. Notice the order. The sword shall never depart from your house because you have despised me. This is what is different. This despising of God. How is it that David despised God? And have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. How many times God gotta say this? He's beating it in, is Thus says the Lord, Behold, I will raise up adversity against you from your own house. This is Absalom, by the way. And I will take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbor. And he shall lie with your wives in the sight of this son. That's an Ecclesiastes reference, by the way, under the sun. For you did secretly. Can you do something secretly? Did he really do it secretly? This omniscient God, how many witnesses David had? So why this secretly? But I will do this thing before all Israel, before the Son. So David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. All of that was to get what? A confession. Bang, there it is. By the way, when you look at Adam, make sure you understand that when Adam is talking to God, he is doing what? He's confessing. Now, many people think he's blaming Eve. He is not blaming Eve. Sorry if you think that. Not really. Not really sorry. Get rid of that kind of thinking. Adam is, is identified as a type of Jesus Christ in Scripture. Wouldn't it be wonderful if any of us were so identified? And we're not. I'm not trying to say that Adam didn't sin, he did, first and second commandment, but he was honored as a type of Christ. not as a contrast, as a type. It's the same thing as, except in shadow, except dimly. Because you can't do it right, can you? Can I get a type of Christ from a finite human being? I can't. The best I can do is a little tiny scrap. So you're never going to get perfect typology. You're never going to get it. If you ever did get it, what are you saying? You're saying that Christ is not infinite God. It's a degradation of his deity. So there'll never the fact that there isn't perfect typology is evidence of his godhood. Anyway, where was it? Starting to rant, aren't I? So David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. Not Uriah. Just murdered Uriah, raped Bathsheba. I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, the Lord also has put away your sin, you shall not die. However, because by this deed you have given great occasion to the enemies of the Lord, the blaspheme. And there's your answer, Dave, right there, baby. Got it? The child who also is born to you shall surely die. Then Nathan departed to his house. Okay? Now, do you recognize the Romans, Romans tie here? Go back and read Romans again, chapter 2, and see what Paul says to them, what they have done. And why Israel is also very similar, where David is very similar to Israel. The child who is born to you shall surely die, essentially, in your place. Then Nathan departed to his house." This is extraordinary. And let's keep going. I know I've only got a few minutes, but let's keep going. And the Lord struck the child. Does that make sense? Oh, no, it does. Who is the child? Who is the child? The child is a picture of the first coming, the sacrificial Substitutionary death of Christ. Who struck the child? Yeah, he's got to strike himself, doesn't he? And the Lord struck the child that Uriah's wife bore to David, and it became ill. David therefore pleaded with God, and this, by the way, makes no sense. As you're reading this, you should say to yourself, this makes no sense. David therefore pleaded with God for the child. What's the obvious question? Why is he doing it? Let's go back. Nathan said to David, The Lord also has put away your sin. You shall not die. The child shall surely die. David is pleading with God for the child to not what? To not die. If the child doesn't die, who dies? David dies. David dies. He's pleading with God to spare the child and do what? That's pretty amazing, isn't it? So it does make sense. And David fasted, fasted and sorry, and David fasted and went in and lay all night on the ground. So the elders of his house arose and went to him to raise him up from the ground, but he would not, nor did he eat food with them. The elders are worried. What are they worried about? What's, what's he doing? The elders are worried. The king, we have a problem. What's the king doing? Trying to starve himself to death, isn't he? He's trying, laying on the ground. He doesn't want the child to die in his place. But he would not, nor did he eat food with them. Then on the seventh day it came to pass that the child died, and the servants of David were afraid to tell him that the child was dead. Why were they afraid to tell him the child was dead? They were afraid of what he was going to do. For they said, Indeed, while the child was alive, we spoke to him, and he would not heed our voice. How can we tell him the child is dead? He may do some harm. Some harm to who? To himself. Why would he do that? When David saw that his servants were whispering, David perceived that the child was dead. Therefore, David said to his servants, Is the child dead? And they said, He is dead. So David arose from the ground, washed and anointed himself, and changed his clothes, and went into the house of the Lord and worshipped. Wow. Then he went to his own house, and when he requested, they set food before him, and he ate. Then the servant said to him, What is this that you have done? You fasted and wept for the child while he was alive, but when the child died, you arose and ate food. And he said, While the child was alive, I fasted and wept. And I said, who can tell whether the Lord will be gracious to me that the child may live? If the child lives, who pays the penalty for Uriah's murder? He wants the child to live. But now he is dead. Why should I fast? Can I bring him back again? What's the answer? No, you can't. I shall go to him, but he shall not return to me. And that is amazingly wise. What a wise thing that is to say. And we'll get to that next week. Then David comforted Bathsheba, his wife, and went into her and lay with her. So she bore a son, and he called his name Solomon. Now the Lord loved him, Solomon. And he sent word by the hand of Nathan the prophet. So he called his name Jedidiah. Because of the Lord. Okay. Really fast. We'll go to Isaiah. Try to put all this together for you. Isaiah 9, 6 through 7. I have Solomon being born, right? Solomon is going to be this great ruler, this incredibly wise king of all of Israel. The wisest man who has ever lived. That will be Solomon. And so I have the child that died and now I have The beloved uh, Jedediah. That's what Jedediah means. It means beloved of God. So, Isaiah 9, 6-7. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulders. There's the two sons of Bathsheba right there. The one dies, the other one has government. The child dies in the place of the confessing sinner. The first advent, the first coming of Christ. The son is made king, beloved of the Lord. The second advent the second coming of Christ. Both sons of Bathsheba are used by God to portray the redemptive work of Christ. How honoring is that? She is greatly honored. Okay. Notice for today a few things. The Lord struck the child. The Lord struck the child. That's a big wow. And notice how he says it too, by the way. It's amazing what God's doing here. And the Lord struck the child that Uriah's wife bore to David. What does God call Bathsheba? Uriah's wife. David pleaded and he fasted and he lay all night on the ground and the seventh day the child dies. That's got to be important. He dies just before he's circumcised. Why did he die on the seventh day? Got to be important. Is the child dead? He is dead. And then David went into the house of the Lord and worshipped. Would you worship? David knew to worship. He knew that when that child died, the right thing to do was to go worship. Worship. I want to read something to you, 2 Samuel 24, because you know 2 Samuel 24 is going to fit in here, right? David does this evil sin, and he says so. He says, twenty-four ten, I have sinned greatly in what I have done, but now I pray, O Lord, take away the sin of your servant, for I have done very foolishly, and God gives him... Uh, three years of famine, your Bible might say seven, but I'm, I think it's obviously three. Three years of famine, three months before your enemies, while they pursue you, are three days plague in your land. Now consider and see what answer I should take back to him who sent me. So, those are the three decisions of David. And David picked the plague, and that was very, very wise. And Christ himself, the angel of the Lord, came and killed, as it says here, uh, 70,000 men. How many women and children is that, too? That's a lot of people. You make the case it's a quarter of a million people. Then David spoke to the Lord when he saw the angel who was striking the people and said this, The angel of the Lord, Christ, has come. He is killing people. Does Christ come and kill people? Yes, he does. Why? You have to know why. Happens in the tribulation. Happened at the Passover. But David is seeing this death And this is what he said, Surely I have sinned, and I have done wickedly, but these sheep, what have they done? Let your hand, I pray, be against me and against my father's house. That's the same as Moses, isn't it? Moses comes down and says, well, I kill these people. Blot me out. David said, blot me and blot out everybody behind me and in front of me. Let these people live. That's David. That's how he thinks. He's a what? He's a man after God's own heart. And then this incredible thing, I want you to think about it. We'll endeavor to solve it next week. It's amazing wisdom. It's contained in there. I want you to read it carefully. I want you to read it slow. I'll read it again. I shall go to him, but he shall not return to me. What does that mean? As I said, only a wise man could say that. You try to figure out how he did it. And I'll see you next week. Let's rise and be dismissed.